Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. In this newly recorded episode, Professor Carrick discusses measuring pupillary light reflex in both bedside assessment and with the Reflex app. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ted Carrick, and I've been asked to talk about the pupillary light reflex when we measure it at the bedside, as well as when we measure it with the Reflex app, which is the up-and-coming application that's in everybody's uh, handbag. So one of the questions we get is that standard types of examination, you flash a light in the eye, you watch the pupil constrict and then dilate, again and over it goes in a pretty short period of time. I prefer to measure this response over 15 seconds. And people say, well, what do you measure for so long? Well, the obvious answer is there's a lot of things that can happen in those 15 seconds that are clinically important. For instance, in concussion work, it takes longer for the pupil to return to its pre stimulus size. So we measure the time it takes to get to 75% of where it was when you started. And then that gives us a lot of information and sometimes it's up around 12, 13 uh, seconds. So when we look at the pupillary light reflex, we're basically going to describe the pupil getting smaller and then getting bigger or the constriction of the pupil in reference to a light source. And then, of course, dilation. And that dilation occurs uh, as, a, uh, as a consequence of the dilator muscles uh, being activated as well as antagonistic actions to inhibit the iris sphincter. It's a pretty complex pathway, but it's really important clinically because different disease sources give us different types of phenotypes. So it makes it pretty exciting for us to look at. Now, when we look at pupillary light responses, there is a lot of potential error if you measure, for instance, the state of pupils at rest after a treatment over a period of time and other things sequentially because it's very difficult to uh, exactly duplicate the light in a room that you're doing a test. So in a clinical situation, if you've got a laboratory room that is exactly monitored with heat, temperature, light, and sound, you could probably do it, but for most people, you can't. And since we look at pupil light responses on the field at sporting events and the clinic from room to room, we can't really look at the changes from what we would refer to as a baseline because the baseline is in fact the measure of the size of the pupil depending upon the luminance, the light, the environment in the room, the color of the walls, and all of these things. So what we like to do is measure the functional activity of the light response looking at a novel baseline every time we do it. And there's certain things that we really uh, look for. Of course, these are great tools to look at the autonomic nervous system because the pupil is innervated by both the sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system, and differences between the two are readily observable. So you can imagine how wonderful it is to have one target area that is 
associated with both parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, systems. So we've got the ability to quantify the function of the autonomic nervous system, and this is what we've been doing in our research in degenerative diseases as well as in as in brain um, uh, brain injuries. So when we look at the uh, the eyes, they're beautiful. And I think everybody remembers the first time they dissected a, a cow's eye, like in middle school or so. It was pretty amazing. It was for me, and I became enchanted with that anatomy and learned as much as I could about it as a young as a young boy and it's just sort of continued and the clinical applications are incredible and then further understanding in dissection of human eyes and then uh, being in surgery for uh, retinal detachments and a variety of other procedures has given me a different window of being able to look at the eye and then to look at my clinical observations and put together a type of of a working functional thing that works well for me. So let me share a little bit of that uh, with you. Uh, basically, if you look at the eye and you flash a light on it, the pupil is going to constrict, then it's going to dilate. There you have it. So if we can measure the phases associated with this, and there's there's a lot of them, but we can divide them into about four phases. It really will give us a non-invasive tool to be able to dissect the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system, but to go further and look at how they work under function. So when you look at your patients, you know, sometimes you'll see a patient, they've got small pupils, especially older people, or some people have got large pupils. They can have large pupils, pupils because they smoke some dope uh, before the examination. And this is becoming very, very common in areas where marijuana use is, is legalized. So just be aware that empirically we've got a range of normals and they're roughly around seven and a half to eight millimeters in diameter. Uh, when there's not a big stimulation coming through and they can constrict way down to about one and a half to two millimeters uh, when they're constricting. So when we look at these different types of activities, we can get a good window of the integrity of uh, both parts of the autonomic nervous system and of course the functional relationships between those parts and the suprasegmental and segmental control areas, both in the brain, the brainstem, the cerebellum, the spinal cord, and on and on we go. So what do we recommend doing? Well, it's very expensive to measure pupillary light responses or pupil responses to a variety of things until lately with the advent of a pocket app that works on your iPhone. Now, I've looked at this reflex app and compared it to some very expensive pupillometry and the results are equally as good. It's robust and we're pretty excited about it. And we will be uh, publishing on this. Uh, we have a couple of papers that are in process uh, as we're looking at. So we, we talked about four phases. So you shine a light onto someone's eye and how long is it going to take for that pupil to start constricting? We call this the latency. Most of you are aware of this. The runners at the gate on your mark, get set, boom, 
and then how long does it take him to get off the block? So the latency is really uh, super, super important. So that's the, the response to the light. And then the pupil is going to constrict and it will constrict until it starts to dilate again. So the point that it starts to dilate just before that is the measure of the maximum constriction, obviously. And then of course, when the pupil starts to dilate, we refer to this as escape and then recovery to the previous state. And sometimes we don't get to that previous state and sometimes we rebound uh, higher than the previous state and the pupil has a greater diameter. Sometimes it oscillates between states uh, in hippus and a variety of other things. So let's just talk about it that if we can observe those four states and get numbers for them, then we can have a pretty darn good idea of what's happening in the central nervous system specific to autonomic controls. So when we look at the pupillary light response, we want to examine both eyes, even though we have direct and consensual responses. We want to uh, look and dissect what happens because of the supersegmental control and the reality that you can get a different size of a pupil due to a head injury or neurodegeneration on one side to the other, we call this an isochoria, and we can measure this in isochoria with a pupil light response and we can measure its individual function. Fortunately, the autonomic nervous system has ipsilateral components that really allow us to do a whole load of great uh, things clinically. So when we look at the light uh, sensitivity, we want to see how long does it take for that pupil to constrict. And we get some nice graphs with the pupillary light response and constriction is lower, the numbers are smaller, dilation is higher. So you'll see this big spike that goes down. It should go down rather briskly. If it goes down slower, that is not a good sign and that is something that we talk about in our educational clinical programs. So when we look at the, the period of latency, mark and set go, this is due to the, uh, the time it takes for the smooth muscle of the iris to contract. Of course, it also depends upon the integrity of the retinal light receptors and the pathways from the retina that are going to come into uh, the uh, tectum of the mesencephalon and then to the mesencephalon and then outwards uh, to the, the eye muscle. So there's a lot of things that can happen along the way. But in any event, if the pupil constricts after a period of time, then it's going to uh, have a velocity type of a curve. And the velocity curve is, is pretty magnificent to look at. It's going to be uh, starting out slower, going faster, faster, until it gets to its highest velocity. And then, of course, it'll slow down and uh, then it will start to recover. So when we look at the uh, velocity of the, or the speed, if you would, the speed or velocity of the iris constricting, and we look at how it's going to accelerate starting at no constriction and then getting faster, 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 we're going to be able to plot these things out with velocity curves. And obviously, the velocity curve is going to be dependent upon the stimulus 
it? How long is it? Uh, what color is the light? Is it full spectrum? Is it broad spectrum? Is it limited? Uh, what's the integrity of the retina? And um, we're, we're going to be able to look at the fact that regardless of the light in the room itself, that the constriction amplitude is going to be something that we can calculate using subtraction. We just take the uh, the start of the um, of the diameter of the eye. We measure that, and we measure it when it's maximally constricted, which would be the minimal diameter of the pupil, and take a difference between the two of them. And we need to do these because of the probability of never being able to simulate the exact stimulation uh, scenario again, ever in time, unless we've got a very expensive dedicated lab and most people are not going to, to have it. So after the pupil constricts as much as it's going to go, it's going to dilate again. We say this is the escape phase, but the escape phase is not associated with an immediate bounce back to the previous size of the pupil. It doesn't do it. It takes a longer period of time and it can last, you know, for, for, for you know, a minute. Uh, you get 60 seconds a minute, maybe, maybe a minute and a half it can take to, to redilate. But a lot of people, if they're really healthy, between one and five seconds, they're up there. If you've had a head injury, it's going to take you, you know, sometimes up to 15 or even, or even more. But we can get certain, uh, certain patterns. So when we look at these patterns, we have to think of what's going to contribute to them. And this is where you need to understand the role of photoreceptors. These are rods and cones in your eye. And we've got different ones in different locations that contribute to different responses of the pupil. And we go these uh, into these rather in detail in our course, but I think for the average bear, it's not so important. The important thing to realize is that this, uh, after you shine a light in someone's eye, we wanna look at the ability of the eye to constrict, but then we wanna see what are the characteristics of the response after the light stimulus. And the reality is, is that we can look at, oh man, the, the after effect up to three minutes after uh, you flash the light on the eye, again, dependent upon the integrity of photoreceptor cells and everything else. So we like to measure uh, eye response over 15 seconds, even though you could have a good reason to measure it for a couple of minutes, three minutes or so, 15 seconds, I think gives me the ability to look at the individual uh, patterns. Now, everybody knows how we check for an internuclear ophthalmoplegia. This is a swinging light test. One of our faculty members, Lloyd, uh, Lloyd uh, Lord Miller, gosh, I got it, Lord Miller, uh, he wrote a paper and published a paper on that swimming, swinging flashlight test years and years ago. And he is a functional neurologist. He's also a board certified uh, medical uh, neurologist and a dear friend of mine, as well as everyone who, who really knows them. So when we look at the swinging flashlight test, going from eye to eye, we can look at the responses 
of the pupil to light. We can see if they have an afferent pupillary defect. You should review that, know that cold. I don't have time to talk about this right now, but they're very, very important to be able to, to understand. Now, when it becomes uh, a matter of looking at what we're doing, the pupil will constrict or it's gonna dilate or it's gonna have a steady state. We need to understand the different components of the autonomic nervous system. So let's start with the parasympathetic. And when it comes to light stimulus, there's three major divisions that have uh, been known for a whole load of time. And in the um, activation of this parasympathetic system, you need a light stimulus that has a receptor activation. This is the afferent limb. And then, of course, we're going to have an efferent limb. That's the information that goes out to make the pupil constrict. And in between, we've got an interneuron, so a three-neuron pathway. What do we look at? Again, we look at how long it takes to constrict, the maximum uh, constriction it has, and then the escape and the different patterns of velocity, amplitude, uh, and uh, patterning that we see in the individual uh, pupil after the individual escape. And all of these are dependent upon the, uh, of course, the function of the afferent system, but on the uh, function of the parasympathetic system. So when we look at the, um, the, the, the velocity of constriction, and the amplitude of constriction. These are really dependent upon how big the eye was before. So if you have a brightly lit environment, you're at the beach, you're not going to constrict as much because you're already constricted, so the velocity is less. Or to say it differently, you'll have higher velocities of constriction that come from previously uh, greater diameter pupils. So the bigger your pupil is, the greater is going to be the velocity of the constriction. Just like a saccade of an eye movement, the further the amplitude, the higher the velocity should be if everything else is, is normal. So when we look at the photoreceptor activity, there's different layers of rods and cones in the retina. There's different locations of these rods and cones. And there's different physiological functions that occur with depolarization, hyperpolarization, changes in the membrane potential, and releases of different types of neurotransmitters such as glutamate uh, that results in a variety of disinhibition. And depending upon whether the glutamate receptors are uh, excitatory or inhibitory to that receptors, we call them ionotropic or inhibitory metabotropic receptors, we get different sorts of things. Okay, so that's beyond what I'm talking about here, but I love to talk about it because it's a big part of the work that I do. So let's just pop through and assume we understand what rods and cones do. In between, uh, we've got this interneuron that will integrate and really influence the output or the, or the efferent arm. And that uh, interneuron is located in the pretectal area of the midbrain, the mesencephalon, and this pretectal olivary nucleus has uh, been known forever and ever projects to the Edinger-Westphal nucleus, which causes 
the pupiloconstriction. But it's really, really important to realize that although these three uh, neuron pathways, if you would, are well known and memorized by people, the afferent signal uh, comes uh, from the retinal cells and goes right to the superior colliculus, and it's that superior collicular activity that results in the integration in the pretectal olivary nucleus. The same superior colliculus, it's the intermediate portion, but the uh, area just a little bit above it that excites omnipause inhibition of burst neurons, both inhibitory and excitatory to saccades. So we like to look at the correlation between saccadic latencies and pupillary latencies, the same area in the colliculus that gives us these environmental maps that allow us to know uh, where we're going and allow us also to saccade uh, to an individual area and uh, shows the merit of eye tracking over VOG, for instance, when we're looking at these collicular types of activities. So uh, looking at those individual pathways for pupillary constriction, you can review those and we'll go through if you are interested in our course and show what happens to these areas when you've got frontal lesions and a concussion, when you have Alzheimer's, when you have dementia, when you have Parkinson's, when you've got gait problems, etc. It all works out different, but for a general practitioner, this probably is 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 enough. But the the thing for for general uh, practitioners or neurological newbies to to realize is that we've got an interaction between the peripheral nervous system through the central nervous system controls that will dictate what's going to happen to the uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, system. So when we look at the sympathetic neurons, we, we wanna look at those in association with the recovery phase. The first phase constriction, you think parasympathetic, the second phase, escape and then recovery is sympathetic system. So when we look at the parasympathetic system involved in constriction, we know that the sympathetic system itself, depending upon its level, you know, it can be higher in different anxious states, uh, etc. Well, that individual sphincter itself, that parasympathetic intervention is suppressed by the supranuclear inhibition as a consequence of activation of high sympathetic output. Yeah, so when you say, boy, this is, uh, the pupillal constriction is a window of parasympathetic activity, it is, but the ability of that parasympathetic activity to occur is dependent upon the previous state of the sympathetic system, which activates areas in the brain that inhibit the parasympathetic output. So that, a, a long latency may not be due to anything wrong in the parasympathetic system or into the retinal receptors, but can be due to uh, aberrancies in sympathetic control. And here's where we look at blood pressure, heart rate, breathing, a variety of these other uh, different activities. But at the very least, we need to have an understanding of the brainstem reticular activating uh, system, especially in the pawns, and uh, these are the these are the fellows that activate the sympathetic uh, nervous system that inhibit 
these preganglionic parasympathetic neurons at the Edinger-Westfall nucleus. For those of you in the pain business, you know the importance of alpha-2 adrenergic receptors in the pain pathway. It's the same type of receptors at the Edinger-Westfall nucleus, as well as the alpha-1 adrenergic sympathetic pathway that causes uh, dilation of the of the iris so the alpha 2 inhibits the edinger westfall nucleus the alpha 1 receptors is going to cause constriction so we can have changes in velocity in diameter and a variety of concomitants because of this uh, sympathetic uh, nervous system and anything that goes wrong uh, from the hypothalamus uh, down to the rostral intermediate lateral cell nucleus in the spinal cord or up through uh, the, uh, the carotid vessels into the eye, oh boy, away we go. So we have these cholinergic types of activities and then we have noradrenaline in the postganglionic fibers. And we've got other things that are going to affect the iris. And most of you realize that the fifth nerve, that trigeminal nerve, shares a nuclear integration with the C2 somatic uh, system so that the V1 division, the, ophthal uh, the uh, ophthalmic division of the fifth nerve plays uh, an innervation in the iris and can modulate pupillary diameter as well. And a variety of other things, you know, from drugs coming coming down and down and down and down. So a lot of research on different uh, neuropathic disease, autism, Parkinson's disease, anxiety disorders, Alzheimer's, and uh, a variety of the entire uh, gamut of, of head injuries. So when we look at uh, individual aspects of trauma, whether it be to the neck or the head, we like to look at the response of the eyes to, uh, to light. This gives us a very good prognosis for brain injuries. And there's been correlations for many, many years with the Glasgow uh, Coma Scale, as well as the type of injuries, the uh, gender and age of the patient and a variety of other types of effects. We know that when you have head injuries, uh, that people can get an isochoria. We like to look at their driver's license and see if one pupil was smaller or larger before. So uh, clinically, we say that if you've got a difference in diameter of your pupils that's greater than two millimeters, we think that that is significant. We know that it's associated with a longer time to get better with greater symptoms over periods of time, post-concussion syndromes, as well as, of course, with death, uh, that dilated uh, pupil. So um, we can get those numbers, we can quantify them, and go on and on. Well, I'm not gonna be talking a whole load about the different areas that integrate because it gets complex, but the one thing that's very important to realize is that in brain activity, anytime you think about something or do a mental calculation, your pupils will dilate. And if you give people number series, uh, you're gonna get greater dilation if you give them seven numbers to call back to you versus three numbers, which is easier. So we find big differences in pupillodilation in individuals that have frontal lobe injuries that can't compute 
numbers. They can't say them backwards or forwards. We like to use the EQ app, and we use something called that Jersey Reversity, where a coach will give you a sequence of numbers, and you'll pop them backwards by hitting a player that's wearing the number. It gives us hard data, gives a patient data, and it's a nice, uh, easy way to increase activation into dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and frontal cortex with resultant changes in the reaction of the pupil to mental tasking. So we like to measure mental tasking over 15 seconds with the torch uh, setting of the pupil reflex app. We use the torch, in other words, the torch is something that gives you a constant light uh, source. It's not on or off. So we set the source, uh, the source of the torch at two and we illuminate the pupil for 15 seconds. We give them seven numbers to repeat to us, and that usually takes, oh, by the time we say it and they come back, about 12, 13 seconds. And we can see whether there is a difference in the diameter of the pupil. With individuals with concussions, sometimes the pupils end up constricting. Uh, rather than dilating. It's really pretty, pretty darn amazing. The other thing we see is that in pursuits, uh, we know that in vertical pursuits, the pupils dilate uh, if you're looking upwards, whereas you're looking downwards, they can constrict. This is a part of the accommodation uh, reflex. We know that individuals with neurodegenerative diseases or concussion, they don't have this autonomic response. In other words, they have dysautonomia. So we use the pupil response over 15 seconds and we get them simply to follow the camera on the phone that's recording the pupil response up, down, up, down, and we look for changes in pupil diameter and we can be very, very accurate in diagnosing uh, dysautonomia. Uh, and we can do this without using a uh, tilt table without using grip strength types of things. It's really very exciting. I presented on this at the American Academy of Neurology concussion meeting uh, very recently, and we've got one paper in process on this. So what are the take-home uh, aspects? Well, the take-home aspect is that everyone should have this app. I've got no disclosures here. It allows you to quantify things and it's cheap. It doesn't cost you very much. I don't know what it costs, but it's pretty darn cheap. And you've got it in your pocket. We recommend that you do things over 15 seconds. The time to recover to 75% of the initial size of the pupil after a light source takes a long period of time, you know, 12, 13 seconds. So you want to go 15. And then when you're doing mental tasking and pursuit mechanisms or dynamic, functional, neurological, or autonomic stress testing, you need it over that greater period of time. The great thing about these auditory uh, things is that you can play them backwards, slowly, fast, time and time again. This is the flyby. It's very complex. You're just going to shine a light. You want the pupil to constrict. You want it to dilate. That's what you want to look at with a pupil light response. But you want to be able to calculate the change 
in diameter of the pupil as it's doing it uh, through these sequences, and you need technology to do it. It'd be like trying to guess someone's blood pressure by looking at them. Who would do that? The same thing is we don't have to guess by shining a light in the eye and making a comment on the reactivity of the pupil. And the reason we don't want to do it is because there's very poor inter-examiner uh, reliability and inner examiner reliability. Even if you repeat it yourself, you don't do as well. So we want to look at the uh, the briskness of the response. We want to look at the velocity of the response. We want to look at the escape parameters and the time to get to at least 75% of the, the previous state. We want to see if there's HIPAAs. We want to see if there's changes in sympathetic activity and parasympathetic activity with mental tasking, with a variety of complex movements. We measure those uh, pursuits, head and eye motions, and a variety of other things. And I think that I'll talk about each one of them in separate little mini talks that I think will be very exciting for people. If you'd studied, um, uh, with the Carrick Institute, especially in vestibular rehabilitation or traumatic brain injury, then this is a whiz for you because you understand things. If you haven't, then some of this may seem a little complex, and it should because it is, which is why we need to quantify it to make things easier for us. Okay, if you like this, give me a scream. And if you don't, well, you can tell me too. Take good care. Thank you much. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carriginstitute.com.